0: Well, Good morning. Good to be with you guys today. Thank you, Pastor Dave, for reading the Word for us this morning. I always love when you read. You read so authoritatively. I love it. I love it. Well, good morning to everyone at Farmington Hills. Hope you guys are doing well today. Pastor Sean and everyone over there uh, and everyone online this morning, good morning to you as well. Well, today is a special day. Today is a young man's birthday. I think we have some of his pictures up. Uh, Today is Pastor Scott's birthday. And so he's watching online this morning. Good morning to you. Yeah, that's who this young man is right here. Yeah, that is our very own Pastor Scott. So good morning, Pastor Scott. Happy 30th birthday to you. (laughs) Hope that you are doing well today and enjoying This birthday today. Uh, But before we get into our time in the word together, let's pray this morning. Uh, Father God, we come to you in your mighty and matchless sons, Jesus' name. God, uh, we thank you for life. God, we thank you for Pastor Scott and his heart for this church and his service to this church. And I hope that he has an amazing birthday today. God, I pray for your word. I pray that it would be preached uh, clearly for what it is. I pray that you would move me out of the way. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase. And be made much of in the lives of your people. See your mighty Son's Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 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 Well, it's about that time of the year where most people have either broken their New Year's resolutions or they're in the process of breaking their New Year's resolutions. It just is what it is. For a lot of us, we've grown cynical to the idea of New Year's resolutions. Do they even work anyway? Statistically speaking, only 9% of people even keep their New Year's resolutions. So most of us have grown kind of cynical to it. I ran across some images on social media this week. I want to look at a few of those. What exactly is a New Year's resolution? It's a to-do list for the first week of January. That's what someone, someone said. Let's continue. Oh, you created a list of t- of 2023 New Year's resolutions. Let's talk about how they are going on January 15, 2023. Oh, that's kind of kind of sad. Okay, that's good. <laughs> a new year it is, but goals are not a must. That's what Yoda says, and so that's kind of the attitude these days around New Year's resolutions. It's kind of sad, but on the flip side of that, people are really excited about life change and are very interested in life change more than ever. The self-help industry, the life change industry, is actually booming. The self-help industry in which people spend money on self-help books and going to retreats and downloading apps to fix something or change something about themselves or to get better at something, that industry is actually booming. In 2022, the self-help industry became a $41 billion a year industry, and it's growing very fast. By 2028, the self-help industry is expected to be a $60 billion a year Industry. So people are spending a lot of money on self-help books and retreats and, and things of that nature, and what all of that self-help cash flow tells me, I, I think it's saying that there's a generation of people crying out and saying, help me. I think underneath all of that cash flow is a generation of people saying, help me. I want to change. There's something about me that I want to change. And I'm even willing to pay some guru to go on a retreat or to buy a bunch of books to learn to change. I think there's a generation of people crying out for help underneath all of that. And there's actually nothing wrong with wanting to change, but we have to be careful and assess our motivations for wanting to change. I think it, it would serve us very well to assess the reasons for wanting to change. It's a book called You Can Change. It's written by an author named Tim, Ch- Tim Chester. He lays out these three motivations that most of us have for change. Uh, Their first motivation for change is to prove ourselves to God. For some of us, we really want to be good enough for God. We want God's acceptance. Maybe we want his favor. Maybe we want him to look upon us in a a good way and to, to think well of us. And we work hard to please God with our actions and behaviors. And we figure that if we just get good enough, if we just quit a few things, if we just come to church enough, then maybe, just maybe, we will be good enough for God. And what usually happens with that kind of motivation That kind of fear based motivation, it usually doesn't last very long because we end up very disappointed in ourselves because we feel like we we can't just, we can't please God enough. We can't be good enough for God. And that motivation, which lends itself to even manipulation at times, because if I do enough good, now I expect God to do something good back for me, that usually doesn't last very long. The other motivation is a lot of us try to prove ourselves to others. We want to be good enough for that group. We want to prove some people wrong who didn't believe in us. We want to be acceptable to our in-laws or, 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 or to our family members in some kind of way. And we want to be good enough for someone else. And that kind of motivation doesn't last very long either. Another motivation is we try to prove ourselves to ourselves. If I can just get myself right and if I, if I do enough And if I change enough, maybe I'm acceptable to myself, and I don't feel clean. I just don't even really feel clean unless I'm doing something. And sometimes we can be motivated to prove ourselves to ourselves. That motivation doesn't last long, and it eventually is extinguished by life in in some kind of way. But the gospel offers us lasting change. God offers us a change that will last. And here's what we know about God. God God loves us before he changes us, but then he changes us by his love. God loves us before he changes us, but then he changes us by his love. I know for some people, that might sound a little fluffy. What do you, what do you mean? God's going to love me. I thought I have to do something. I have to fix myself. I have to get my life together. That sounds a little fluffy. What, where are you going with that, Terrence? Well, that's Scripture. Scripture says Christ died for the ungodly. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Scripture says in, in, in the book of Romans, it's God's kindness that leads men to repentance. See, God loves us before he changes us. But then he changes us by his love. So let's look at how God brings about life change. We're, and bear with my drawing here, okay? didn't major in art, okay? Went to seminary, didn't, they didn't teach us how to draw. But this is us. And we're going on about our life. And what happens is we have an, an encounter with with reality and we grow in awareness of God's holiness and then as we come into contact with God's holiness and realize how good he is, we then grow in awareness of our sin. And as I come into the reality of God's holiness and my sin, I realize there's a gap there that I cannot reach God's holiness and live out his standards in my own strength. See, God has standards. He's holy, he's good, he's righteous, and he can't lower those standards. Otherwise, he would not be God. If God was not holy, he would cease to be God. So he loves his children, but he's not going to compromise his goodness, his holiness, and his righteousness for us. And we can't reach his standards on our own. And so Jesus steps into the equation, and he says, I will build the bridge between your sin and God's holiness. And as we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, he dies for our sins, and he gives us his righteousness, and he builds the bridge And I grow in appreciation for Jesus as I become more aware of God's holiness and more aware of my sin. So as life goes on and as life progresses, I become even more aware of God's holiness and God's goodness. And as life progresses and goes on, I become even more aware of my sin. And I see more of a need for the cross. And so the appreciation for Jesus and the cross gets bigger and bigger. As I grow in awareness of who God is and his holiness, and I grow in awareness of my sin, the cross gets bigger. My appreciation for Christ and the cross gets bigger, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as I grow. And here's where the cool thing happens. This is where the life change happens. Because I know that I could never reach God's holy standards on my own. And because I know God is a holy and good God, and because I know the only reason I can have a relationship with him is because Jesus died on the cross for me. And because of his grace, something great happens. My appreciation for Jesus grows and my heart begins to grow. And now I'm motivated to change by love. Now I'm motivated to change, not out of fear, not out of a manipulation, not because I'm trying to impress my family or impress someone who looked down on me. Not because I'm trying to prove something to myself, but now I am motivated to change because of this God who loved me so much. And God begins to transform me by his love. See, God loves us before he changes us, but then he changes us by his love. I'm motivated to grow and change now because of who Jesus is and what he's doing in my life. This is how God changes a life. God steps into our story and initiates the change. And then God invites us into a lifestyle of change. He says, come after me and follow me. He he invites us into a lifestyle of change. And then God empowers and compels us to change by love and a new identity. I want to say that again. God initiates the change. So it's God who steps into our story and says, I want to bring about something new in you, in your life. God God steps into our story. He confronts us, and he brings about the change. And then he invites us to follow him. Then he empowers us. And we're going to see this in Paul's story. We're going to see this in the story of Paul, who in the chapter we're about to look at, chapter 9, he's still going by the name of of Saul, it's the Aramaic for his name. And in, in chapter nine, verses one, we're gonna see God encounter a man who was on an alternative path, a man who was not following Jesus, a man who was actually persecuting followers of Christ. Let's go to Acts chapter nine. It says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. What is a murderous threat? It's a threat of murder. He's talking about killing Christians, followers of Christ. He was breathing out murderous threats. He's fuming. He's, he's angry. So he's, he's breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Not to let Saul off the hook here, but let's just put ourselves in his shoes. Saul was a very devout religious man, and he believed that these disciples were teaching false doctrine. He was, in many regards, self-righteous in the sense that he thought that he was doing the right thing, and now he's going to punish these people who he believes is doing the wrong thing. As it shows how dangerous self-righteousness can make us. When we think that we are right and someone else is wrong, it can look like this. So Saul, being so, so, so self-righteous, he is angry. He's coming for these Christians, and he's going to either, either murder them or imprison them. And in this zeal, it says that he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. He is seeking to be authorized to go on a trip to, co- to go to Damascus to capture Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. Just to give you a little context, Damascus was 135, uh, 135 miles north of Jerusalem. So he's talking about taking 135 mile Road trip on foot. You know how passionate you have to be to take a 135-mile road trip to go get someone? To give you some context about that, I looked at it this week. That's like walking from Detroit to Grand Rapids. How passionate you would have to be, how angry you would have to be to walk all the way to Grand Rapids, arrest someone, and walk all the way back to Detroit. You're really serious. And so that's how serious and passionate Saul was, let's continue, it says, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which is Christianity, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And so he's on his way, he's breathing threats, he's on this path, and he is committed and convinced about what he's doing, and he has his mind set on arresting Christians, and he's about to walk 135 miles to get this done. Let's continue in this story and see what happens, though. As he nears Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. I think this is interesting. It says, as he neared Damascus. So he was close. He was on his way. On that 135-mile foot trip that he was taking, he was almost there. He was almost there. He could taste it. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. and He heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This is the resurrected Christ speaking to Saul. And he's taking this personally. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we're seeing a change already. this man who was just breathing threats, huffing and puffing, full of anger, full of ambition, this man who was just breathing threats, he fell to the ground. He's already in a humble posture. Things are already beginning to change. So let's continue. It says He says, "Who are you, Lord?" Saul acknowledges the authority that is before him, the authority that is the resurrected Christ. Saul acts, and Jesus responded, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Christ encountered him on his path. See, God initiates the change. Saul had his mind set on something else and God confronted him right there in his path in his sin, in his confusion, God meets him right there in it. And that's how God does it. He meets us in our mess, and he, and he turns it around, and he confronts Saul right there on that path to Damascus, right before he's about to enter Damascus. It says he was nearly there. And God begins to write a new narrative in Saul's life. And he takes him to the, through, through the school of brokenness. He takes him through brokenness. Saul is blinded when he encounters Jesus on the path. He needs help walking. Someone has to help him for the rest of his way to Damascus. He has to be led by hand. He's he's incapacitated. It says that he doesn't eat for three days. He's completely weakened. This man who was full of zeal, full of strength, full of passion has been brought to his knees, can't see Can't get to where he's going without someone guiding him. God has broken him, but God is doing a work in him. Here's what we know about brokenness. Brokenness is a lifestyle of agreeing with God about the true condition of our hearts and life as he sees it. That's what brokenness is, and God is pleased by that. He does not despise a broken and contrite heart. He is pleased when we humble ourselves to him and allow him to work in our lives. And that's what God is doing right here in Saul's story. He has broken him, he's brought him to his knees, and now he's even gonna use other people in his story to bring about this transformation. And this is what we know, God always uses other people. We do not change in isolation. He always uses other people to change us as well as he's doing this work of transformation in our life. And we're gonna see this as we continue. God is going to bring some people into Saul's life that Saul didn't know, and and they knew of him, but they were afraid of him. And the very people that he was going to arrest and or kill, these are the very people that are about to help him. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, and asks for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. God brings Ananias into Saul's story to be a part of this work of transformation. Ananias lays his hands on Saul's eyes, restores his sight. They give Saul food. He eats again after three days. And God begins to restore Saul. And He's using other people that he didn't know to bring about this change in his life. Friends, when God wants to do something in our lives, be on the lookout for those people that he's trying to use to come alongside us. And be, alo- be, be on the lookout for the people that God wants you to come alongside as well. He uses his body. He uses others to bring about this work of transformation in our lives. We can't do it alone. Here's what we know. We don't change in isolation, but instead God uses a host of others to bring about transformation in our lives. We don't change in isolation, but instead God uses a host of others to bring about transformation in our lives. And that doesn't mean that if you're helping someone else, helping someone else, you have to be the one that does everything. You might just have a little role that God calls you to play in someone's life, and it could be a significant role. I've heard stories even here of people just being kind enough to greet someone or being uh, kind enough just to insert themselves into a conversation, and God uses that in a mighty way. We don't change in isolation. We change when other people come alongside us and help us, and as we come alongside other people and help them. Uh, this has certainly been my, my experience and my story. When I was in high school, especially those first three years of high school, I was a very angry young man. I was I was carrying a lot of grief. I was carrying a, a lot of anger, and when I was in the 11th grade, I found myself in a tough situation. It's a story I'm not necessarily proud of, but it's, it's, it's my story. And so uh, a kid, a fellow 11th grader said something to me, and I didn't necessarily like it. And so I threw a few punches. I hit him a few times and got in quite a bit of, a tru- quite a bit of trouble for that. I found myself... In the principal's office and the principal said to me that because you hit him and he didn't hit back we technically can call the police and charge you with assault and you're gonna go to go to jail today my mother happened to be there she came up to the school and she pleaded with the principal not to do that as much as she could and he let me off the hook they didn't call the police they didn't press any charges But I still did get a board suspension. So with the board suspension, you can't go back to school until you speak to someone from the Board of Education to assess you and clear you to go back into school. So go through my board suspension, and they send you to a place called Pyramid Academy. You go to Pyramid Academy to be assessed to determine whether or not you're ready to go back to your regular school or whether or not you need to stay at Pyramid Academy, which is an alternative school. And so, true story, I go to Pyramid Academy, and my mom is watching online. She knows that she was there with me. And we walk into a counselor's office who has to assess me. And I walk into the counselor's office, and he says to me, he says, you don't belong here. I'm like, what? He's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, well, I threw a punch. You know, what, what, what are you doing here? He says, God has something else for you. You shouldn't even be here. And I'm like, why are you you saying this to me? For some reason, he believed in me, and I don't know why, besides the Lord. And he began to say, God has something else for you. The devil is trying to distract you. I don't want to see you in here again, because the next time I see you in here, you probably are going to stay. But the Lord allowed that gentleman, and I haven't seen him since, that little interaction, but it, it, it's what I needed at that time as a young man. I didn't, by God's grace, he, just, he didn't just see me as an angry young man. He, he saw something else, and God allowed him to see it, and I'm so grateful for that. I did turn to follow the Lord after that because he said, you need to follow the Lord. He has something better for you. I gave my life to the Lord several months after that, and that wasn't, I would say, the moment, but that definitely was a moment that God used and an individual that God used. And I was so grateful that he put a person in my life that believed and not in me, but believed in the God who could do something in me. He didn't see me for my worst actions. And sometimes people just need you to believe in them and not necessarily believe in them, but believe in the God that can change anybody and that can change anything. No one Is beyond his reach. And I know for some of us, we've been patient with people. It's probably hard to believe that God can turn something around. Or maybe we find it hard to believe that God can turn something around in us, but he can. And sometimes an individual just needs you to come alongside them and believe that, yes, brother or yes, sister, God has something better for you. And we see this in Saul's story with a gentleman named Barnabas. Barnabas. See, everybody didn't believe that Saul had actually changed. A lot of people didn't believe in Saul, and a lot of people didn't believe that God could do that in Saul because of who he was. A lot of people still doubted him and was afraid of him. But in steps a brother by the name of Barnabas, and he says, it says this, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. You heard about this guy, what this guy was doing, what this guy was planning to do. Why is he here? No, 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 don't bring him around here. So that was, that was kind of the tone. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken on him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas believed. Maybe God is calling you to be that Barnabas for someone. And maybe maybe you need a Barnabas. We all do. But we don't change in isolation. We don't change without God bringing a host of people into our story. And that keeps us humble, by the way, because we know it's not just us. We know it wasn't just us who changed us. God used a lot of different people on that path. And that gives us a reason to worship God. That gives us a reason to praise him, praise him for who he is and what he's done, not through us, but through his word and through his spirit and through his, through his people. But everyone isn't happy about change all of the time. Everybody's not going to be happy about the changes that God is making in your life. All the time there will be resistance to change. That's just the way it goes. There's always going to be resistance. And as we, I just want to share a few ways that we see resistance. Sometimes there's loneliness in the transition. As God is doing something, you might have to let go of some things, let go of some people. There's sometimes loneliness in that transition. Sometimes there's doubt in that transition. It's hard for you to believe and others to believe that God is actually doing something of significance in your life. Sometimes that's fear because God calls you to take these steps of faith. And, ooh, those can be scary sometimes when he tells you to step outside of your comfort zone. Persecution, you might get some pushback for the steps that God is calling you to take. And one of the areas of resistance is us. We, we become our own resistance. We, we push back. We become stiff and we don't want to allow God to do his work. When I, was, um, when I was in middle school, I tried out for my middle school baseball team. And I needed to buy a new glove. I had never played baseball much. So I needed a new glove. And so I got a new glove. And I noticed when I got my new glove, it was so stiff and so rigid. Anybody ever got a new glove? When you first get it, it's so stiff and so rigid. It won't. Ben, you can't get it to do what you need it to do. And so when I got my new glove, I said to my dad, who actually played college baseball, um, he was a catcher, and he was very familiar with gloves. And he said to me, son, nothing is wrong with your glove. It just needs to be broken in. No glove comes ready for use. The glove just needs to be broken in. And with gloves, when you first get them, there's a breaking in process where people have to beat against the glove Some people use mallets. Some people use oil to soften the texture. Some people, um, they play catch with it a lot to soften it up. But you have to beat against it to soften it so it no longer resists the will of the one who's trying to use it because it usually is inflexible and rigid when you first get it. It doesn't want to submit to the will of the one who's trying to use it, so it has to be broken in. And that's what God does with us. He does a work of softening and breaking and pushing against our inflexible parts in order to help us to no longer resist His perfect will. And so He does this work of transformation in our lives. And we know that He changes us by His love. And you, you might say, well, that doesn't sound like love to break me. <laughs> but actually, that is love. God disciplines those who He loves. And he takes us through this work of transformation. He brings about a work in our lives. See, God loves us before he changes us, but then he changes us by his love. I just want to leave you with these words of affirmation. The gospel isn't just for those who don't know Jesus yet. It isn't just for unbelievers. It's for believers as well. Of course, unbelievers have to come. If you don't know Jesus today, I pray that you would see God for who he is and all of his holiness and all of his goodness. And I pray that he will reveal to you your need for him. The fact that you are born in sin and you are not righteous and holy on your own accord, and therefore you need him to bring about that change in your life. And I pray that the gospel and the good news of what Jesus did for you on the cross would be sweet to you, that you would see him for who he is in all of what he's worth, and that you would uh, accept that invitation to follow him if you don't know him today. And if you do know him, I pray that you would continue to see him for who he is. I pray that you would continue to, to grow in awareness of his holiness and of his goodness, that you would continue to grow in awareness of your need for him because you're not him, and then in that you will grow in appreciation for what he's done for you. He, he loves us before he changes us. I want to read this. It says, it's an affirmation over you. I am the beloved child, loved, enjoyed, before I did anything. Before I messed up, before I did anything brilliant, before I made something of myself, before I impressed all those people, before I made any money, before I lost it all, before the addiction, before the recognition, before the divorce, Before the promotion, before the kids, before I lost weight, before they liked me, before they stopped liking me, before, 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 I am the beloved, loved child of God, enjoyed before I did anything. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in your mighty sons, Jesus' name, thanking you for your love, thanking you for your grace. God, we thank you that you're not looking for perfect people, but willing people, people that are willing to follow you, people that are willing to accept your gift of grace. Pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us and reveal our need for you. It's in your son, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.